Christ for all the needs that we have, all the things that we see around us in this world, Lord, You're enough. You're enough for everything that we need. Lord, it's in You that we have life. It's in You that we have breath. It's in You that we have our very being in this world and the next. Lord, You are more than enough. You are our abundance. Lord, there is no no turning back once we've seen Your dear face. We thank You. We thank You for the Word that You've given, the Spirit that indwells our hearts. Father, we pray that our minds would be attuned to what You have for us today. We ask this through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please, uh, please be seated. The First Amendment of the United States Constitution states, in part, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. As an Air Force chaplain, my concern with regard to religious accommodation, uh, and, and really that was the challenge that the Department of Defense had, was how do you support and defend the free exercise of religion without violating the prohibition against the establishment of a religion? I could spend hours talking about this with case study after case study. However, suffice it to say that the Department of Defense, based on Supreme Court uh, documents, have, they've defined religion. And this is how it's defined. It's a personal set or institutionalized system of attitudes, moral or ethical beliefs and practices held with the strength of traditional religious views characterized by ardor and faith and generally evidenced through specific religious observances. Okay, that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's a fine definition. One of the courses I took at Boston University centered around one question. What is religion? And what seemed to be a very simple question turned out to be uh, one that was virtually impossible to answer. The, the Department of Defense's uh, explanation uh, or definition is as good as any I've heard, except for one thing. For the believer, it is wholly unacceptable. <laughs> why? I'll tell you why. It's because it's entirely anthropocentric, i.e. it's man-centered. You see, it begins with a personal set or an institutional system as if there could be any other kind. It, it ends, though, this way. Those beliefs are held with ardor and faith. So the central focus is not on the content of what is being held, but it's on the power, the sincerity of your belief. As an Air Force chaplain, my primary responsibility was to 
ensure, to help ensure, I was the primary action officer for the commander on any given base, to ensure the free exercise of religion for every service member, regardless of what their religion was. And so in the fulfillment of that duty, one of my distinctive uh, roles was to determine the sincerity of a person who was claiming to be a conscientious objector. Okay? Now, I uh, often wondered how in the world did such a person come to be in the military in the first place? For those of you who do not know, no matter what you're told, no matter what you see in the paper or read or what is spin out to you, the military kills people and breaks things. That's, that's its job. And so you have people that come in there, and, but I, I do understand that philosophies and belief systems, religious or theological understandings, do change over time. That's what happens. It does change. And so in this particular context, what I determined actually had an impact in the outcome of the case. So even if it, it, it's a legal thing, it's not something the chaplain decides. It's something that is, that's ultimately a legal issue. But the law has very few mechanisms to determine the sincerity of one's belief. So it fell uh, to me. That was in my lane. But I had nothing to say about the content that the person believed. Only whether that belief was held ardently sincerely, powerfully, you know. And the bottom line of the definition of religion is this, that it is the quality of your belief and not the quality of the content that matters. As long as you're sincere, you're good to go. Turn with me to Luke seven thirty-six through 50 and we're going to see two ardent beliefs at work. One revolves around man, the other around God. Now, after uh, 2,000 years of Christian history, uh, the difference when we read this is going to be evident on the surface. It's like, well, of course, everybody would understand it this way, but that is not the case. In fact, on the day it happened, I'll guarantee you it wasn't evident to anyone except for to Jesus Christ. So Luke 7, 36-50 reads this way. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, that is Simon, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus, answered, uh, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves a little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is one of the richest stories, most exquisite stories in all of the, the New Testament in its detail and in its telling. Now, wealthy Jewish homes... Uh, would often invite the traveling rabbis in as uh, for any number of reasons. One, they may be religious, they may be curious, but most often it was an opportunity for them to show their generosity because what they would do when they would open the home to the rabbi, they would also open it to the community. So houses back then were built in such a way that they may have been attractive on the outside, but that really didn't matter. What mattered in those homes was the courtyard in the middle. Now, that was going to be a very elegant, beautiful, and relaxing place. That's, and that, that also remains true in many parts of the world uh, today. And so to show their generosity of uh, spirit, they would invite everyone in so that they could come in and see the beauty of the courtyard and also to have some food. And so when a rabbi would come in, especially one of renown, they would say, hey, come over, we're going we're gonna to throw a party. When Barbara and I ministered in Jordan, it was impossible, impossible to go into a home without getting kissed. Sometimes, and if they really liked it, it was... <laughs> and you better make sure you went the proper direction at any given moment. <laughs> they, would do, they would do that, and then they would give you a hug, and then they would serve you something. There was something always, always being, even if it was a toothpick, it didn't matter. Someone was always coming around to give you something. Now, here's the thing. If that didn't happen, you knew something was very wrong. It was not a mystery. There was no mystery, in fact, because the only way that that wasn't done was intentionally. Now, you've got to understand the same thing was true back then. Now, they didn't do exactly the same thing. At least we don't know how they exactly did it. But we do know certain things. We do know that when a guest came in the home, the first thing that would happen is, at a minimum, the hand would be put on the shoulder, and then there would be the kiss of peace. Now, whether that was a physical kiss or not, don't know. But that's what would happen. It would be followed by the servant would wash the feet. 
Now, this was important because sandals filter nothing. And you're walking on the road where everything has been. Now, a guest out of a pure practical matter is going to want to wash your feet. Now, we don't have that today. We have all these nice paved roads. There's no sheep and goats running around out there. No camels. There's no nothing out there. We got these nice shoes that we wear. That wasn't the case back then. You have to understand that this was a normal part of business. Wash the feet. And then they would finally, they would take a drop of perfume or some kind of incense that wasn't burning and they would put it in your hair so that you could get the aroma of the road off of you. And this was normal business. Jesus Christ was not asking for anything extraordinary at all. In fact, he didn't ask for anything at all. And this was the context that Simon invited Jesus into his, into his home. But as we read, that's not what happened. Someone else, not the host, provided those things. Again, in the uh, beginning in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat. He went to the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table. I do need to pause there just for a moment, just in case you don't know. They didn't have tables like we have tables. Like when you go to, you know, to lunch, you're going to sit around a table. That's not what they did. They had cushions, and it was in the form of like a U, and they laid down. They, they, actually, they actually reclined. I mean, literally. They reclined. They reclined with their, their left hand to hold them up, and then they ate with their right hand. Very similar in many respects to what happens today. So that's where they were. They're reclining around the table. doesn't mean they have chairs that recline. It means they were laying on the cushions that were placed probably over a carpet over the ground. And she learned that he was there, and she brought an alabaster uh, alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him. You see the picture better now, right? She's not, she's not at his feet under the table. She's standing behind him where his feet are extended and she begins to weep and wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with uh, ointment. One little life lesson that I want to draw from this piece, just right away, and that is like Simon, some people invite Jesus into their house, but not into their hearts. And they treat Him, after having invited Him into their lives, they treat Him as if He's an unwelcome guest. You know, Simon hosted the dinner with Jesus as the honored guest, but something was seriously wrong here. I mean, you know, uh, in, in our culture here in America today, we can look and say that was an oversight. But as I mentioned before, for Jesus, this was a slap in the face. And he knew it. And all the townspeople knew it. And everybody who was there knew that Simon did not respect Jesus Christ. And in fact, it even gets a little worse, as we'll see. Because he was throwing this party for the community to show how magnanimous and generous and what a wonderful person he was. Sometimes, you know, we're not far from that, though, because when we accept Jesus as Savior, we say we invite Him in as a what? As a guest. 
Jesus Christ is not the guest of your heart. (laughs) He is Lord. He is King. You do not invite Jesus in for Him to just sit there and, and, and be a part of all that you do in your normal, ordinary course of life prior to inviting Him in. No, He makes certain demands. He's our King. Because He's our guest, we think that we have control. This is my house. While you're in my house, you'll obey by my rules. And while that works in our context when it comes to Jesus Christ, that ain't how it works. We abide by His rules. And when we don't, we're acting like Simon. There's a second thing I want to point out here, though, that, and that is that some people think that Jesus was just pretty good at reading people. Yeah, He was pretty good at reading people. You know, the text tells us, though, something entirely different. I want you to catch it. Because it's, it's important for you to, to catch this thing. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Understand this. Simon is not talking to the other Pharisees. Simon's not talking to Jesus. Simon is not talking to the woman. Simon is talking to himself. In his mind. So Simon is having this discussion in his mind. And when Jesus heard his thoughts, how does it say? What does the text say? And answering him. Hey, let's continue this inside discussion that you're having in your brain on the outside. Let's take it to the outside voice. And here we go. And Jesus answering him, wow, Jesus knew. He didn't think, he didn't guess, he didn't ponder and wonder. He knew exactly what Simon was thinking. And he knew that Simon thought that Jesus was already not living up to his billing as some kind of special rabbi. Look, here you got a sinful woman touching him. And he doesn't even know it. Eh, He's just another old dusty rabbi. But Jesus heard this and he judges. You know what? I think maybe this is why the Apostle Paul tells us to, to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. <laughs> Jesus hears our internal conversations, folks. And sometimes he answers. Sometimes he answers them in ways that we are not thinking about. But... I want to make a a little statement here that we shouldn't control our thoughts as a matter of guilt. Oh, Jesus is watching. You know, it's like this song, you know, Ray Stevens, Santa Claus is watching you. No, 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 no. It's not for guilt, right? It's out of respect. It's out of respect for the King of glory who abides in our hearts. Third, and this is the heart of the, the message here, if we're truly in love with Jesus, then what others think simply doesn't matter. We are so occupied with what other people think about us and think about what we do and think about what our relationship is with Christ. It simply doesn't matter. And I'm going to explain why it doesn't matter to this woman. Fewer things 
are more disconcerting to your, your firefighters or your policemen or your uh, first responders of any kind, certainly to all of your folks who are in uh, combat, then something, and if you've been in an extraordinary situation, you may have experienced this. It's called auditory exclusion or intensified sound is another piece of that. Uh, or sometimes it's called tunnel vision. And your brain just kind of takes over in those situations. And it does certain things about how it allocates resources in your mind and how it determines what's significant, what's insignificant, and where all the energies have to be placed so that you will live. Your brain takes control in unexpected and uncontrollable, in many ways, uh, at times. For example, 85% of people in combat experience what's called diminished sound. Now, if you and I were to go out to the shooting range and you did not wear earmuffs and you fired off something, you know, fire out a few rounds off, your ears are, may hurt and they may ring. These guys don't hear anything, or very little. 72% experienced heightened visual clarity. They could see minute movement. 65% experienced slow motion time. Interesting, there's 16% that experienced uh, diminished visual clarity and, uh, and heightened hearing. As it turns out, guess what? That was when it was dark. <laughs> Brain said, hey, you don't need to see, you need to hear. And, uh, and so sight's not that important. Let me give you a real life example. There were two police, they were chasing a perpetrator who had stolen a car. And after a long chase, uh, this guy ran into a ditch. He, he crashed there and they were going to run up there and make the arrest when all of a sudden uh, a bullet slammed through their their windshield. Okay, now that, that, that upped the ante quite a bit. And so this guy's shooting at them, and so uh, one guy uh, starts shooting his, his pistol, the other guy starts shooting his shotgun, and the brain and training took over at this point. Here, I want you to read, I want you to hear the officer, one of the officer's own words. I faintly heard the sound of one round go off. Then nothing. I could feel the recoil of my gun. So I knew I was firing, but I didn't hear the shotgun at all and I thought my partner had been hit. When it was all over, as it turns out, I had fired nine shots, my partner four, and the perpetrator three before we killed him. Neither one of us was injured. I had no idea. And here's the thing. I had no idea how many rounds uh, we fired until I was told at the investigation. To this day, I have no memory of hearing any gunfire except that first round. Something else, too. Another one, uh, just very briefly. A SWAT officer, total other event. And you don't know why the brain does what it does, but that's exactly what it does. He emptied a clip from his submachine gun. 
And he never heard around at all. Not one. You know what he did here? He heard the tinkling of the brass as it hit the ground. But he never heard a shot. You know, the, the brain just does some amazing uh, things. So why the exclusion? And I, I am driving towards something here. The brain determined that sound was needless in these cases. And it used its considerable resources to focus on one thing, the thing that gave it life. And living was by being able to see the perpetrator and feel the recoil. Hearing meant nothing. People who are in deep trauma, you can talk to them, you can yell at them, stuff like that, and they're like, they don't hear you? Guess what? They don't. You know, they don't don't hear you at all. While some may have, most of us have never been assaulted with deadly intent. But we're not freed from this process of the brain function. For example, if you're worried about something, if you're deeply worried about something, even, even right now, what happens is, is it begins to control processes in your mind that make you have a lack of awareness in your life. Now, that's fine if you end up with a stubbed toe, but that's not so good if you end up in an automobile accident because your brain is focused somewhere else. Just on a kind of innocent one, because I think most of us have experienced this. Have you ever driven on a road trip and you've gone about 20 miles? And then you look up and you go, where am I? How did I get here? And you're the driver? That's a scary thing, right? But it's, it's, so what we have here is that this is what's happening with this woman. This woman is so focused on Jesus that she's completely lost awareness of everything around her save Him because He is life for her. She was not concerned about the cultural barriers of letting her hair down. She was not looking or seeing or registering in any way the loathful looks that Simon was giving her or the judgmental looks that the Pharisees were giving her. She didn't feel, and while we're not told, I assure you, this would be 99% the case. Servants were trying to get her out. She didn't feel that at all. No, all she saw was the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else mattered. She was experiencing all the exclusions the brain can provide because the first time in her entire life she understood what total acceptance was. She felt total, pure love. And she felt total forgiveness. I tell you, I wish my upbringing on no person, friend or foe. But I will say this, because I had an awareness of my sin, the day, the power, the sheer power of that moment all those years ago remains with me to this moment. From the day I first believed till now. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've felt it. You've experienced it in your own heart. And others may wonder. But listen to me. It wasn't glorious in that sense. My first response to God was pure fear. 
It was selfish. I was lost. And then Christ came. And then when I recognized that I was lost and I was doomed and there was Christ in front of me, I guarantee you that that was thankfulness at a profound level. Now, most of us don't fit in the category this woman was in. But your response will be the same once you realize that the greater sinner was neither the woman nor Simon. In fact, there was no greater sinner. When it comes to saving, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to salvific merit in our relationship with God, magnitude of sin or frequency of sin is absolutely irrelevant and meaningless. That is a fact because the truth is it didn't matter if it was 500 denarii or 50 denarii or one penny. How many of us in here can look into the face of God and say, I have currency that you can spend, that you can use. I have something that you can need from me. No, no, we don't. No matter how much or how little we sin, guess what? If you get only one. If all sin had stopped in the garden, and that was the last, and the only one, and all of the rest of us lived perfect lives, Christ still would have to die. Doesn't change that cost, but it does change as a matter of the awareness of sin. I think in many ways how we live our lives. She was aware of her sin. Simon was not. And her actions demonstrated that she understood that she was forgiven. Now, I've got to pause here for just a second uh, because the potential for bad theology exists in this passage. It, it, it really does. And I don't want to delve too deeply in the uh, exegetical process. I tend to keep that out of my messages. But in this case, it's absolutely critical. We have to look at a small three-letter word for, for a moment. And the reason we have to look at this is because anybody who knows uh, English prepositions know that yeah, they can mean a lot of things. In this case, it can mean about six different things, Right? But I'm only going to cover two of them because only one of them's uh, bad theology and the other one is, of course, uh, good theology. You could set it up that way. Four can be causal, right? For this reason. Because of this, right? Or it can be explanatory. For you see. For you, 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 can, you see something, right? It can mean some other things, but again, I'm not going to bring them in here. So what's the issue? Some people read verse 47 this way. And if I had read it this way, I pretty much assure you that none of you would have caught it. But I'm, I'm, I'm signaling it to you now so that you will not miss it. Therefore, in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. That takes me back to the beginning of the message, doesn't it? It's because of her great love 
that Christ forgave her. Now, when I was dealing as a chaplain with conscience objectors, one of the causes or reasons uh, that the conscience objector is being granted that status is precisely this interpretation of that word for. Because it's what? It's the quality of your thing, not the thing that you hold to. There's no measure of the truthfulness of the content, only that it's sincere and that it's deep. And that's a serious a serious theological error to think that her love was the cause of her forgiveness. And I'll tell you a number of reasons. One of them is really very practical, and I hope that makes sense to you, because one of the practical reasons is None of us, not one of you nor I, should ever try to generate more love for Christ so that He will love us more in return. Or so that He will save us. You can't love Him enough. There is Your love can never be the proximate cause of your salvation. Never happen. John, 1 John 4.19 tells us something about that. We love Him because He first loved us. Don't try to generate that. That's just the flesh. We don't recognize it as the flesh. We think of it as, as, as true religion and sincerity of heart. But it's not. It's us trying to make a way to God when God has already made the way to us. Now, how do I know that from the text? I do know that from the text. It says it right there. Look back in the text. It says Jesus in His parable, He says there are two people who had debt. The amount is irrelevant. They had debt. Neither could pay the money lender did what? He canceled their debt. Who do you think, after the cancellation, is going to love more? And Simon gets it. <laughs> the only thing he gets right that day was to say the one who was forgiven more. Now, if we take the four in another way, which is evidentiary, right? Then we have harmony with this passage and then we have harmony with the rest of Scripture where we see the four as evidence of her receiving Christ's forgiveness. For you see, for you see she was lost in her adoration. For you see, I mean, look. See it in the text. For you see she washed His feet. For you see with, with her hair and and her tears, and for you see, you, you know that she knows forgiveness and love of Christ because you see her response. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he is forgiven little, loves little. Many people think that they're pretty good people. And most people are. I think on the whole, most people from a living in the in the world are are good people. Most people, if you stop on the side of the road to help, they're they're not going to hijack you. They're not going to harm you. Uh, 
most people who stop to help you. The same is true. Most people are pretty, are, are, are pretty good people, but the problem is if... Well, I'll, 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 Simon was probably a pretty good guy. Simon was probably well-liked in his community. Simon was actually, since he was the one who got to host Jesus, he was probably the guy that people looked up to. People didn't think of Simon as an evil man or a bad man. He's a pretty good guy. But the problem is, he didn't have any awareness of his sin at all. It was the perfect time for him to seek for forgiveness for his sins. You know, he had invited Jesus into his home, but because Simon failed to realize his need, he never even asked. But because the woman was so keenly aware of her need, she didn't ask either. She acted. She provided the things that Simon did not. My prayer for each of us today is that we fully understand our need for Christ. Need for a Savior. And having trusted Him, so fix our eyes on Him that nothing that this world offers matters. That nothing that we do in service for Him, what other people think about it, matters. It's what God is calling you to. Whether the world offers, because the world offers different things. The world offers riches, but you know the world also offers shame. I know we don't look at it that way, but it's true. That's what we have here that can be brought to bear. And nothing would interfere with our worship and service to Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. God will not, does not. You have to understand theologically that forgiveness from sin is an open door. It's open. You don't have to go and say, Hey, Jesus, can you open the door so that I can come in? That's not the way it is. That door is open. Our problem, the problem is because of our own self-sufficiency, we don't go through the door. Many of us don't go to the door. And that will keep us from going through the door, which is Jesus Christ. I mean, we may sincerely hold beliefs, but sincerity's got very little to do with it. Think of this. You know, the faith the size of what? Mustard seed. That's not very big. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking... You know, you can get on... I got on a plane and flew back here last week. And... They could have strapped me down and I never believed that that plane was airworthy the entire way. You know what? Got me here safe and sound. doesn't matter what I believe as such. It matters what the... Reality is. And the reality for us is Christ. And He saves us in such a way, and I, I never wanted this to lead to guilt, ever. 
whether it's because he hears our thoughts or any, anything. Guilt is a useless emotion to be put aside, unless it's real, thus we need something to make amends for. But not guilt, but rather thankfulness. Father, we pray that we could be like this woman where our surroundings are simply tuned out, whether it's by the brain, whether it's by your spirit, whatever the mechanism, but so that we're solely, completely, wholly, totally focused on your Son, Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, the thoughts, opinions, judgments of others as we act in Your name based on Your calling would simply melt away into nothing. Particularly as it relates to our worship of You. So we thank You this day. We thank You for this story. We thank You for how it applies to us. We pray that we would walk in a way that's worthy of Your calling, that we would keep our eyes fixed on the author and the finisher of our faith. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.